in uh, in First Peter one, we'll start at verse thirteen, and it says, "Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance." But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word today. May these words not be mine, but yours. May your Holy Spirit have freedom in every heart and life here today. We give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we were thinking of, as I was going into this, this whole passage and the way that we're going through First Peter, you have to understand that it doesn't necessarily. First Peter is one long message with um, the same themes that run throughout. So trying to break it down, everything is is it keeps going back to what was before it, and it's no different here. Gunner for the last two weeks has been has introduced us to First Peter and. In 1 Peter, Peter has started off really talking about salvation and just how wonderful of a salvation we have. And if you look back at verse 12, Gunner, where Gunnar ended last week, what it is, is he was focusing on the fact that your salvation, my salvation, is, a, is more special than even what the Old Testament prophets experienced or the angels. Because the Old Testament prophets were there and they were looking forward to a time when God would send this Messiah to save them from their sins and to, to provide this forgiveness for their sins, but yet they didn't know who that Messiah was. So the whole time that they're there preaching and telling people they need to get right with God, they're telling them they have to look forward to something that they can't explain. But here we are, in 2014, and we can look back and know that God sent Jesus Christ, the holy, spotless Lamb of God, to die on a cross for our sins. And so therefore, our salvation is even more special than what the Old Testament prophets experienced. And that's kind of the message that Peter has there. And then it's also the angels. He even says it's more precious than what the angels experienced because they've never gotten the ability to choose to accept Jesus Christ as we have. And so... And so that's, that's where uh, the first 12 verses kind of ended with this focus on salvation and just how special of a salvation we have. So now he comes into it and he says, well, what does salvation do for us? Salvation is more than just a get out of hell free card. It's more than just something that a prayer that we pray that then has no effect on us for the rest of our life. Salvation makes a difference and makes a change in and through each one of our lives. And so he starts here in uh, verse 13 and saying, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whenever you see the word therefore, you've heard it said a bunch of times, you have to ask, what is it there for? And in this case, it's tying this back to, hey, you've been saved. This is an awesome salvation that you've been given. Now, 
This is what you're supposed to do with it. Now, I know that in our English scriptures, we see there three three words, and they all look like uh, imperative commands, if I remember my English right. And... um, but in, in Greek, the, in the original language, it, there's only one command in this verse. And that is, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those other two words there, prepare your minds, is actually preparing your minds and keeping sober in the Spirit. And basically, Paul's, P, Paul, Peter's message here is, fix your hope completely on the grace by preparing your minds for action, and by keeping sober in the Spirit. And so, as we look at this passage, then we see that his focus here is on setting our hope on Christ's coming. And, and this, this theme of hope, this theme of Christ's coming has already shown up. The first 12 verses, is Peter has already, already focused on the fact that we can have hope it, because of our salvation and hope, he ca- and he, he says in verse three, um, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And once again, he starts off this passage by help by causing us to focus on this hope that we have through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Um, all of these, but and, and all of these exhortations are grounded in our salvation that we've experienced as shown in verses 1 through 12. Um, now, what is, what is hope? Hope, in the way that Peter uses it here, hope is obviously something that we trust in, something that we look forward to, something that gives us a reason to live, something that gives us a reason to get up in the morning. But the way that it's used here, it, it's, it's, it's almost equivalent with the term faith. It means that when we look to God, we trust our lives to Him. And that gives us hope. It gives us hope that we don't have to worry about what we go through. Because remember the other theme that Peter is kind of weaving in through here. These people are being persecuted. These people are going through rough times. Rougher than what most of us are going to experience as Americans. We're not going to be persecuted for our faith. But we may go through death. We may experience loss of loved ones. We may experience problems in our family lives. We may experience problems in our social lives, in our work situations. And all of those situations, our hope is not in our ability to fix those things. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and holding on to Him. And so it leads us, it drives us to trust in that. He continues the focus on our hope being grounded in the promised future rewards. He says there, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's when Christ comes back. Or when we, because we die before he comes back, we get to see him face to face. It's that time when all of the temptations that we have to sin are gone. It's that time when all of our problems are not there anymore because Jesus Christ has solved every one of them. It's that time in our life when we will, when God's grace will be fully realized. The only reason that we have the ability to have a relationship with God is through His grace. Grace is nothing more than the unearned, undeserved favor of God towards each one of us. And that's what saves us. It wasn't that Ben Howard was good enough. It's not that any of us in here are good enough to earn our way to God. We can't go to church enough. We can't say, we can't pray enough. 
We can't read enough scripture. We can't be good enough and we can't give enough money. But God in his grace looked down and said, I know that Romans 3.23 says for all the sin and false of God, I know that you're a sinner. I know you can't meet my standards, but I love you anyway. And I sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross and forgive you for those sins. And he paid the price for your sins. And so that's God's grace towards us. And we respond to that grace in our lives. But then God's grace wasn't just to get us saved. God's grace takes us throughout our life. His grace is enough to get us through any problem that we're facing. His grace is enough to stand up to any temptation, any issue that comes into our life, any problem that we face. His grace will be there for us. And ultimately, we get to see a little bit of His grace here on earth. But ultimately, when we get to see God's grace fully realized, is when we're in heaven, in a perfect body, the way that God intended us to be created. When Adam and Eve were created by God, they weren't created to die. They weren't created to to experience pain and suffering and loss. They They were created to experience absolute perfection, holiness, freedom from sin, freedom from pain, freedom from mental problems, freedom from anything like that, and to live in perfect harmony with God. And everything about the Christian life is about us trying, is about God working in us to, to help us along that road until ultimately when we are in heaven and we have that absolutely perfect fellowship with him, just like Adam and Eve originally experienced. And so his focus here is on fixing your hope, not on yourself, not because you can do anything to fix your problems, but completely on the grace of God that will ultimately be experienced in heaven. Now, but then, like I said, there's these other two phrases there. How do we do this? What goes, how do we fix our hope? There's two things that he talks about. He says, fix your hope by number one, preparing your minds for action and then being sober in the spirit. Now, this goes along with another verse that we're going to look at later in the book of First Peter. First Peter 5, 8 and um, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I love cats, and we have four of them in our house, and they're really cute, and we have a new little kitten, and it likes to bite you, and um, I don't really mind it so much because it doesn't bite hard, but um, as much as I like cats, I'm not going to have a lion living in the house with me. Why? They're cute, right? And they're fluffy and all that. No, yeah, except for the fact that their mouth is like bigger than my head. And if you got bit by a lion, you'd be missing part of your body afterwards. Um, and there's a reason that Satan is, is pictured as a lion walking about seeking whom he can devour. And there's a reason we're told to remain vigilant and, and to be sober-minded to be able to see that and to look for traps that he's going to lay for us. Because just like that lion may be nice to look at, the result of messing with him is pain and suffering and maybe death. And so, we're, and, and so even here, he says, hey, we're supposed to be prepared for action and be sober in the spirit. Now, what does this mean, prepared for action? The picture here is actually, um, I think in the King James, it used to say, it, used, it actually said like, gird your loins up or something like that, probably in some old English. But um, what that literally means is is the picture here is of of a military a military soldier or somebody getting ready to do like a um 
uh, ready to do a sporting activity. And at that time, you know, people like me, manly men, we'd be wearing, um, we'd be wearing robes, you know, and, and, and that robe, if you try to run in a robe, it's going to get in the way. So what they would do is you'd take this robe, and I don't know how to do it because I don't wear a robe, but you pull it up and you, you kind of wrap it around your waist, you tuck it into your little belt there, and before you know it, you're basically wearing a pair of shorts. Well, now in shorts, I can go run, and I can go fight a war, and I can pull my sword out, and I have a lot of room to maneuver. And so what he's saying here is we need to live our lives in that same way. We need to live our lives ready for action. Not just sitting there passively, just waiting to see what's going to happen and, and just kind of, okay, I'm going to lay back and do whatever I want. And, and God's just going to kind of bless me and, and, and that's how it is. No, we're supposed to be prepared because there's things out there that are going to try to keep us from seeing God, from focusing on His grace, from focusing on all the, 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 the glory that He has in store for us. And so we have to prepare ourselves for action. And then we all know what soberness is. When we think of sobriety, we think of alcohol. You know, the, why is it that he says, be sober in spirit? It's because for the person that lets alcohol take over, what does it do? It takes over to the point where you're not in control anymore. You can't make that wise decision. You can't make that, that decision that's going to be the one that keeps you out of trouble. Um, now, you know, as a, as a chaplain and then as a Marine, I was around a whole lot of drunk people some, sometimes. And, um, it, while it may be fun to watch them, it's, it never looked like a lot of fun to me because you lose control of who you are. You lose control. You lose the ability and things that they would never do when the alcohol wasn't present in large amounts in their system. All of a sudden they find themselves doing. And that's what it's saying here. We have to be in control, but it's not our control. What is it? It says keep sober in spirit. We're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to let God be fully in control of us at all times. And anything that we do to push God out of our lives, to let other things, other people, other persons take control of us, then it's going to be very hard to focus on what God wants for our life. And so that's why he says, keep sober in spirit, prepare your minds for action. But ultimately, it's all to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Now, what, why does he focus on grace? Because everything in the Christian life is about grace. In a minute here, we're going to look at this passage, and really the theme of this passage is holiness. It's about how we live our lives to reflect the perfection and the sinlessness of God. Now, here's the fact, though. If that focus becomes a focus on what I can do or how well I can keep a bunch of rules or how well I can uh, live my life according to the Bible, then I have completely failed right there. But if the focus is on how, how weak I am and, how, and my inability to do any of that, but totally on what God can do in and through me because of His grace... That's the point that Peter's trying to make here. And so he, he, this verse doesn't start with be holy. It starts with focus on the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is all about God working in us and our inability to meet God's standard. 
What's interesting is that Peter begins his focus on hope we have because of our salvation being completely about of God's grace by talking about holiness. And not about holiness of God, but specifically ours is where he's going with this. Um, there's a verse, 1 John 3, 3. Um, it, it, this isn't just a theme of Peter's. 1 John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope, once again, there's that hope of focusing on Christ. Whoever has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Throughout scripture, there's this theme of our hope in Jesus Christ. Our eyes focused on Christ changes our life. It causes us to walk closer to God to better reflect who he is to the world around us. And we call that holiness. So then we go on in verse 14 and he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, also in all your be, uh, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So here we see what Peter's ultimate really focus is on the, in these verses. He's gone from here's your salvation. Your salvation causes you to have a hope that is greater than anything else in the world. And you should focus your hope on what God, on the grace that God has given you in your life and the grace that will ultimately be realized in heaven. But that hope then changes the way you live. That hope then means that our lives are not the same as they were before we met Christ. And that's why he starts off here as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance. You see, before you were saved... You didn't necessarily do every sin in the book. You know, there's a whole lot of unsaved people who do not go out and murder people. Thank goodness. We'd have a really messed up world. Um, there's also a lot of unsaved people who do murder people. There's a whole lot of unsaved people that I've met that actually know how to not cheat on their spouse and have a pretty good marriage. And, and so that, you know, they don't commit that sin. But ultimately... Our ignorance of what God wants before we meet Jesus Christ will lead us into a lot of sins. And maybe it's not this, a big sin, adultery, murder, something like that. But pride, arrogance, greed, lust, whatever it is. And as a non-Christian, it's easy to look at those things and go, well, you know, I made the money. I'm going to spend it. I, it's my life. I'm going to live it. It makes me happy. I'm going to do it. But as a Christian... We have the scripture to go to and we have, we have no excuse for the ignorance anymore. Now we have God saying, this is what your life's supposed to be like. And not only that, he's saying all that stuff that you think is going to make you happy, it's not going to make you happy. It's just going to ruin your life in the end. But by following me and, and, and living your life according to God's word, that's what brings true happiness. That's what brings true success and true rewards in this world. And so, and so he says, we clung to that in ignorance. The problem with holiness is this. Sometimes when we, when we start thinking about holiness, where it should be about God, what do we start doing? We start looking and we say, wow, holiness, huh, that's, a, that's a big word. That's uh, the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, I'm good with don't murder, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Oh, I cheated one time there. Um, you know, uh, you know, I saw this on my neighbor's property. Is it really his? Maybe it came over my property line. Um, did uh, 
you know, we, we, we look at others and don't covet. Oh, there. Okay. Well, let's skip that one. Let's go on to another one. Um, and you can start looking at all these and all of a sudden it's about, man, I'm, I'm not doing well. I need to pick up the pace. I need to start doing this better. I need to start doing this better. I need to do. And what have you done? You just turned holiness and made it all about yourself. And if we look at holiness and it becomes a list for us to follow or not to follow, then we're going to miss the whole point and we're going to fail miserably at it. Because in my own flesh, while I may wake up every day and go, okay, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be holy. So I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And I am going to do this. And I am going to do this. And I am going to do this. And it's all about me. And okay, I can do this. I just failed right there. Because I haven't looked at God's grace and said it's only through His strength, it's only through His help, it's only through what He's doing in my life that I'm ever going to be able to do that. Because I am a complete failure. But God says it's not about you. It's about my grace. It's about my strength. And that's where our hope needs to stay. That's why He says here, notice this phrase there. He says, as obedient children. Now, I happen to have a child at my house. He's, he just turned one this week. And, um, you know, he, he's an awesome little boy. I love Bradley. And, you know, there's, but you know what? He relies on me and Beth for a lot. Okay. He relies on Beth a whole lot more than me because she probably does more with him. But, um, yesterday we had a sandwich for him. I couldn't just give that sandwich to him and just expect his six teeth to be able to bite into that sandwich and start eating it. With six teeth, you know what? We had to cut it up into little bitty pieces and you start feeding it to him one little piece at a time because he also thinks he has chipmunk cheeks and he can like stuff an entire sandwich in his mouth at one time. Um, and, and with a little baby, and even as they grow up, you know, a three-year-old cannot take himself anywhere. You got to take him everywhere. A four-year-old needs a ride to school. They really, I know, it's weird. Um, they, you know, they, they, they are not self-sufficient. And, to, and, and even when they think they are, you know, because then they turn 13, 15, 14, 15, 16, and all of a sudden they think, oh, mom and dad, I know more than you do, especially when they get that key to the car. And um, I don't need mom and dad anymore until 25 when they realize they were idiots. But um, so, you know, but as a little child, you rely on your mom and dad. You look at your mom and dad and think, wow, I need their help. I can't eat this food on my own. I... I don't even know how to go to the bathroom on my own. I need mom and dad to fix that for me. How do we look at God? He says that the, our relationship to God and living a holy life is supposed to be as obedient children. So as a child that is fully and totally reliant on mom and dad, that's how we should look at our relationship with God in, in, in trying to live a holy life. It has nothing to do with me because in myself, I'm going to completely fail. But when I can fully trust in God and say, God, I don't have the strength to do this. I don't have the ability to do this. And let him work through me. It's only through his grace working in our lives that we can even begin to start to live in the way that he expects us to live. And so he says, as obedient children, we're supposed to live that life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, a preacher from the 20th century, died, I think, in 84 he said, um, there's one reason and one reason only why we should all be sanctified and holy, and it's this. Not that we may be happy, nor that we may get rid of our problems, but because God is holy, because we are God's people, and because Christ has died for us and purchased us. We do not belong to ourselves, and we have no right to live a sinful life. 
going all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, God says you were chosen. You're a holy priesthood. You are chosen to be one of my own. Your salvation has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with the fact that God has chosen you and saved you. And you are like, a, we are supposed to be like children, completely reliant on ourselves. And we have no right to look at our father in heaven and say, it's my life. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live how I want because we are God's chosen children. We are his people. Later on, we're going to be called a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that's what we're supposed to try to be. He goes on, he says in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So what is holiness all about? Holiness is separating yourself from all that is evil. And in some cases, now we know what evil is from the scripture. And there are some things that the Bible just clearly says, this is wrong, this is right. But for some people, maybe that separation, it's going to look different for every person. For some people, a glass of alcohol is not a temptation. They can drink it. It's fine. For the other person, one glass of alcohol means they're not going to stop with one. It's going to go two, three, four, five. They're going to get drunk. And now you're violating what the scripture says about be not drunk with wine. There are other sins that for some people, they're they're just not, they, they don't struggle in that area. Other people have to put up more boundaries. They have to make sure, they have to rely on God for certain help with other areas. So holiness looks different the way it works out in, in, each, of our, in each of our lives. But the point is, how are we letting God work in our life and change us and move us to be more and more like Him? And so for each one of us, it's about separating ourselves from what is evil. And then the interesting thing here is he says, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You see, for a lot of people, their Christianity is this. I get up on Sunday mornings, I come to church, maybe I even go to a Wednesday night Bible study or something like that, or I go over to a Bible study somewhere, um, and that's it. And then they go to work, and they, they look exactly like everybody else, they act exactly like everybody else, they say the same things, they talk the same way, they laugh at the same jokes, and it has, and, and nobody would ever see there's a difference. But our holiness, our Christianity, is supposed to affect every part of our life. Christianity doesn't just change us so we can come sit on a chair on Sunday morning. Christianity changes us because it touches every sphere of our existence. And so whether we're at work or whether we're at church or whether we're with our families or whether we're being a parent or a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, however that, whatever role we find ourselves in, Christianity is supposed to change our lives to reflect how Jesus Christ would fulfill that role. And that's a huge, huge standard to live up to. Because I can tell you right now that Jesus Christ, I do not always look like Jesus Christ in being a father or a husband or a pastor or a, a chaplain or anything else. And there's been so many times where, I mean, you've probably seen them yourselves, but there were so many times in the, in the I, I've, I've got friends of mine in the Marine Corps and in the Navy who I knew they went to church on Sundays. They were with their families at church on Sundays. They, they truly gave a testimony of actually knowing Jesus Christ. But you put them in that environment at work and there was no difference. And they treated people the same way as everybody else treated people. They, they, they said the same things everybody else said. They talked the same way. They told the same jokes. 
and there was zero difference between them and a person who didn't know Jesus Christ. That's not the way our life is supposed to be lived. Our life is supposed to be lived showing that there is a difference, that Jesus Christ's grace changes us from the inside out. There's a, um, you've all heard the, the, the word hallmark, and it's more than just a card. But um, in, in, uh, in Britain, um, they would, the hallmark was, was come up with because they would have uh, gold coins, and, and they would certify that this is, um, this is money that is certified by the British Empire to be the right weight, the right amount, that you can use it for legal tender. And so what they would do is they would stamp it with what they called a hallmark. And that hallmark defined and said that it was that the, the British Empire's stamp of approval that that was legal tender money to use. If you want to look at one thing that's the hallmark of a Christian, it's not the fact that we say we've been saved. It's not the words we say. It's not that we carry a big Bible around and slap it down on our desk. It's not that we wear different clothes all the time. It's not that we, it's not that we even come to a building in the middle of a city. The hallmark, the difference in our life is that we reflect the holiness of Jesus Christ. And that is a huge standard to live up to. And we only do it by a thorough trust in the grace of God working in our lives each and every day. What distinguishes our lives as God's chosen children and it demonstrates our faith in the, in the world around us is holy living. Now, why do we do this? Verse 16 says, because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a quote from Leviticus. It's not an exact quote, but Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregations and the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, and it's probably more of a theme from Leviticus. If you remember what has happened by the time Leviticus gets there. So Adam and Eve sinned. That happens in Genesis. And Adam and Eve, God created them perfect and said, You know, that you have a perfect world. Take care of it. They fail, as any one of us would. Don't blame Adam and Eve. We would have all failed. And um, so they, they're created perfect. They completely fail. Years and years and years go by. Um, and, and now God, and, and God promises them, I have a plan. There's going to be a Messiah coming that's going to save you from your, that's ultimately going to destroy Satan's uh, power and authority. Well, t- take it years and years and years in the future. Now God says, I'm going to raise up a, a one nation of people who's going to reflect me to the world. And I'm going to work through that nation of people to show people who I am in the world. And he, so he raises up Abraham and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And ultimately they end up in Egypt. And then a man named Moses comes along and God raises him up to say, let my people go to Pharaoh and get them out of the land of Egypt. And he says, I'm going to take you to a promised land. But before they get to the promised land... God's focus isn't first on go to the promised land where you can be a salt and light and reflect me to the world. His focus is on who they are as a people. And so the book of Leviticus is there and he says, this is how you reflect me. You follow these rules. You, 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 you live your life in this way. I, I, these, this is my standard of holiness. And it's a standard that's completely unreachable. And that's why he says, and by the way, you're not going to reach it. So here is all the sacrifices that you, that, you, that you can do in order to represent your faith in this coming Messiah who will be able to perfectly uphold this law. But he said, this is what will make you reflect me to the world and then I can take you into the Holy Land. And so the book of Leviticus is all about that, the, the focus on holiness. And, so, and, and, and it's the same in our lives. Before we can truly be salt and light to the world, 
salvation is about changing us. Before we can go out and be a witness to the rest of the world, we have to be the right type of witness. We have to reflect who Jesus Christ is. And so God is all about working in us. And so the first step here is he doesn't go from salvation to you're an alien in the world. Now tell people about Jesus. He goes from salvation to salvation changes you from the inside out. And from there, that change can reflect Jesus Christ to the world so we can be used as a witness for him. But salvation is about changing us and God working in us. And ultimately, it's about comparing ourselves and having only one standard, and that's God. He says, be holy for I am holy. You know, too many times I can make myself feel better if I start comparing myself to the wrong, the wrong measure. I can look around and go, wow, I'm better. I see what that person does, like Larry. I'm like, sorry, Larry. <laughs> I, Gunner's not here. I had to do it. Um, so, you know, if I start comparing myself to some people, I can, I can be like, man, I'm pretty good. I feel good about myself today. I've, I've got it, God. I've I got this under control. I, and and you, we all do that. It's not, it's not just me. We all do that. We all get in this habit of we can look around and we can see other people and we can compare ourselves to them and say, well, I know I'm pretty good because I see what that person's like and whew, I know, I'm really glad that I'm, I'm doing a little bit better than they are. So I must be reaching the standard. The problem is God's looking down and saying, no, Ben, that's not the standard. You've completely missed it. The standard is me. And if I compare myself to God's standard every single time, my focus won't be on what that guy's doing or what this person's doing or what anybody else in the world or the church is doing. It's going to be on me and the fact that I have completely failed him time after time after time after time. And it drives me back to my knees, back to saying, God, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot reflect you perfectly. I need your help and your strength and your grace to get through day by day by day. And so holiness doesn't become a standard by which we say, and we, we set a bunch of rules and say, this person's not living up to this and this person's not living up to this. But instead, it's us looking at ourselves and saying, God, where have I failed you? And believe me, every time you'll find out where. Because it won't take long before you look at your life and you'll see that something doesn't measure up to God's perfect standard of holiness. It's interesting to me that Peter always likes to end his thoughts in each kind of paragraph by focusing on another scripture passage. Peter, and once again, he does it here when he, because he draws in this passage from Leviticus. He's always focusing on the fact this isn't just Peter saying this. He's trying to point out the fact that the scripture as a whole has been saying this all the way back to the very beginning. And by pulling in this passage from Leviticus, he's saying God's plan from the very beginning has been as a people of God, you're supposed to reflect his holiness. So don't listen to me, Peter. Don't listen to Peter, the man. Listen to what God is saying. And I'm just repeating it for you of what's already been said. So then he goes on from there and he started off with, hey, your salvation provides you this hope and your hope changes your life in the way that you live in holiness to the world around you. But then what is the motivation for that holiness? He goes in verse 17 and he says, now we're supposed to live in something that we don't really like to talk about sometimes, and that's fear. He says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. 
And you'll notice that the, the, the command there, this is the last of three commands in this passage. Set your hope, live, you know, be holy, and now conduct yourselves in fear. Live in fear. Now, there's two ways you can take the fear of God when it's discussed in Scripture. And they're both correct. The first way, and a lot of commentators will try to say that it's the only way, but, but I don't think it is. And that is that fear means honor and respect. And it does. Um, in, in our old, we, we don't use it that way much anymore. But, um, you know, you would speak of fearing the king or honoring the king. And they were kind of interchangeable. And so in the British monarchy or in other monarchies, you would have a fear of the king. But it really meant like you respect them. You would bow to them. You would honor them in their, in their role, in their office. And we should look at God that way. We should be looking at God and recognizing the fact that God is God. He's sovereign. He's in control. And we should be able to bow before him as king and Lord and honor him in, in our hearts to the Lord. But fear also does speak of fear. Um, you know, for, for, for Bradley, you know, I don't want him to fear that I'm going to hit him with a baseball bat if he screws up, if he messes up. But I do want him to have a healthy fear that, hey, I don't want to let mom and dad down when he gets to that age. So I don't want him to be disappointed in me. I don't want him to, um, I, I don't, and, and, and that's the same type of, that's fear too. It's fear of letting someone down. Maybe it's not a harsh fear, but it's a fear. Um, it, it's, a, it's a healthy respect for that person in your life that you care about who has the power to discipline you and, and to make you pay for things that you do wrong. Um, if you want to think about it this way, you know, even a person who's been driving for 20 years, um, now I'm a terrible driver and I admit it, but um, for a person who feels like they are a good driver, think of a race car driver. You know, they drive all the time. They're in control of a, a million dollar race car going over 100 miles an hour around a track with a ton of other cars. They've got to be a pretty experienced driver. But I guarantee you part of what makes them a good driver is a healthy fear of an accident. And so, yeah, they've, they've got some skills and they trust in those skills, but they also have a very healthy fear of, I don't want to get hurt and I don't want to get killed. So I'm going to be careful on how I do this. That's, and I believe that's also in mind here with fear that in our lives, we say, I, you know, it's not that I'm scared of God, but I do fear the consequences of not obeying him that I I, I, I love him to the point where I don't want to fail him. I don't want to, I don't want to go outside of his will and experience his disciplinary measures in my life. And hopefully it's not just because, well, I don't want him to hurt me, but it's because I don't want him to be disappointed in me. Believe me, we're going to disappoint him a lot if he's really looking down at us, and he is. But in his grace, he forgives us for all of that. But that, but... It, it, it's up to it, it is it helps us to live that life in holiness the more that we fear and we understand a healthy fear of God and who he is and the power and authority that he has in our life um, Proverbs talks a lot about fear of the Lord and it always kind of ties it in with this idea of fear should turn us away from evil in Proverbs 3 7 it says do not be wise in your own eyes fear the Lord and turn away from evil um, the other interesting thing we see here in verse 17 is he comes back and he's constantly got this focus on the fact that we are here temporarily. He says during the time, we're supposed to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Once again, pointing out that you may be here on earth, 
And you may go to work every day, and you may go to your family every day, and, and we live our lives here, and we experience life as a human being, but ultimately, as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not our home. This is a temporary dwelling that one day in heaven, there is a permanent residence that has already been built for us. And it's not just a, a, a permanent resident as in we have a green card. We are a citizen of heaven. That is what we were created for. We were created for eternity, not for the 80, 90, max what I saw 113 years the other day so the oldest person or something in the world is. That's a tiny drop in the bucket for what we were created for. And so as we live our lives here on earth, having that constant focus that our hope is not in the next 90 years. Our hope is in eternity. And what God has planned for us for the rest of our real lives, which happen long, before, long after we, our body is dead. And so um, we are temporary residents. And he goes on after this and he says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Every one of these churches that he was writing to, this was a circular letter, as, as I'm sure Gunnar already pointed out, that goes around all the churches. Every single one of these churches would have had three types of people in them. Freed pe- free men, free people who had never been put in slavery. Freed men who had been in slavery and been, and been bought out of slavery or released from slavery. And then slaves themselves. It was a very common practice in Rome. And, and it wasn't like our slavery in the 1800s. This, is, this, this slavery was, um, you could buy your way out of it. It was very common practice. And so in their minds, when Peter says this, they have in mind a slave being redeemed from its ma- his master, her master. And the redemption was always done with money. And so you could bring enough money and say, this pays for this person. They are now a free person. But for our salvation, no amount of money could purchase it. You could have all the gold in the world and you could offer it to God and God would say that is not even going to begin to pay for your salvation. In fact, according to Revelation, the streets of heaven are paved in gold, so it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's blacktop. You could bring all the you could bring all of your good works and say, God, here's my good works. I've I've done all these great things. I've given all this tithe money. I've been at church. I've, I've done all these things. I've said all these prayers. I've read the Bible cover to cover. And he's going to look at you and say, okay, even Satan believes and trembles. What, what does this do for you? That's not good enough. Isaiah says that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even the good things we do are just a pile of junk to God. Because none of us are going to reach that holiness standard. But instead, he says, it's not about silver and gold. It's not about things. It's not about anything you can do. But that's why he says in verse 19, showing the difference in what saved us, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Unlike the human value needed to physically redeem a human slave, the focus here is on the value needed to redeem us spiritually from our sin. The value of our salvation is not measured in money. You can make all the money you want on earth, but it's not worth your soul. The value of your soul 
is the cost of absolutely perfect, spotless human blood. And the only way that God could even provide that blood was not through any one of us because he looked at all of us and said, all of you are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so he had to physically himself come down to earth, become a human being and live his and and Jesus Christ had to live his life as fully human and fully God in order to meet that perfect standard of holiness so that when he died, his blood became the only perfect sacrifice. And all those thousands of lambs that had been put to death in the Old Testament that pictured his coming, they didn't take away sin either. They pictured the perfect one that was coming. But when Jesus Christ died, he became the absolutely perfect and only holy sacrifice for sin. That was what it cost for us to have salvation. And if our focus is, stays on that, it becomes a whole lot easier to live our lives in holiness. Because we, the, instead of looking and saying, what makes me happy? What can I get out of this life? It becomes, wow, I can't even repay, begin to repay God for what he's done for me. And so my life of gratefulness lived in the grace of God becomes one that says, I want to live my life for God every single day when I wake up. I want to live my life reflecting Jesus Christ and his holiness and his love to the world around me. And the, and the awesome thing here that goes on in verse 20 and says, it says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. You know what I see out of this? It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 1, 2, when it says that we were, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What I see here is that our salvation was not an afterthought. God knew about this. He knew that Ben Howard would not be able to save himself. He knew that all of us are going to be failures. But he planned for it before we were even there. He knew that Adam and Eve, even though he created them perfect, he knew they were going to fall. This wasn't something where he looked down and said, Oh my goodness, these perfect people are failing me? No, he looked down and said, Yep, I knew it would happen. But he already had a plan. He already had a Messiah planned. And he already had all of human history there before him. And he said, I've already determined that I'm going to send a Savior who's going to save you from your sins because I knew you were going to fail, but I still wanted to have a relationship with you. He could have sat out there in, the, in time and space, created more angels without a choice, without the ability to serve and worship him. But instead, he chose to create human beings who could choose to follow him and live in a love relationship with him and be adopted by him and be chosen by him and be part of his family because he wants that relationship with us. And it wasn't an afterthought to him. What a tragedy it would be if we looked at that salvation and we said, great, I have my get out of hell free card. I can do whatever I want now. Because God has given us the ability to wake up every day and live our life striving to know Him better, striving to serve Him better, striving to reflect Him better, so that when we get to heaven, we know the person we're looking at. Because we've grown closer to Him every day by how we live our life and how we apply His Word into our lives as we read it, study it, and grow from it. 
He ends in verse 21 and says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We are believers in God through him, through Jesus Christ. He's the only reason that any of us have the right to pray to God, to worship God, to sing these songs, and let the words go anything above this ceiling. The only reason we can come to God is because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And, 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 and our hope, just as, just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and took him to be with him in glory where he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, our hope is in the fact that, Jesus, that God did not intend for us just to die and that be the end of it. His intention is for us to, yes, if we face, we'll face a bodily death, but our home will be in heaven. And when we raise up out, when God raises us up after death and takes us to be with him, it will be in a new body, in a new heaven for all of eternity to never have to die again, just like our Savior Jesus Christ, where we'll be with our God and Father forever in the glory of heaven. And that's our hope. That is what our faith is in, and that is what our hope is in. Gunnar used a song last week, and as I was putting this sermon together, a hymn, an old hymn came to my mind. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Holiness is our most daunting and most worthy goal that demonstrates to the world the change that Christ has made in us that makes us an alien in a foreign land. The only way we meet that goal is constant trust in God's grace shown to us in Jesus Christ, the holy and sinless sacrifice for sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we can never say thank you enough for dying for us, for sending your Son to live a perfect and holy life, to sacrifice himself so that we could have a home in heaven for all of eternity. We ask that we would trust every day in your grace to help us live closer to you, to better reflect you to the world around us. And may you make that difference in our life that only you can make. May we never trust in our own strength, but always look to you. As we come before your presence this morning and partake in communion, may you help us to reflect on what Jesus Christ did to make a difference in our life and how great of a sacrifice it was that paid the price for our sin. It wasn't silver, it wasn't gold, it was your holy blood. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.